0: Blog Talk Radio
1: Coming to you since nineteen ninety seven. Coming to you since 1997 on KKUP Radio with over 250 guests and still going strong in their 12th year of weekly broadcasting, the International Taz and Paula Show brings to you expansive, engaging, and groundbreaking intensity on radio and now on the internet airwaves today. Listen live every Thursday or visit Embracing Mother Earth's archives, exclusive articles, ask questions and receive actual answers from guests anytime at TazAndPaulaShow.com Taz and Paula's special guests are experts coming from all walks of life, energizing our lives with a passion that inspires and teaches us with each of their compelling personal life journeys with roots from ancient wisdom and bridging it with modern science. We hope today's show touches the wisdom of your heart. And now, Taz and Paula.
2: Well, good afternoon, everyone. We have a great guest today, Linda Moulton Howe. For years, she has tapped into the scales by exposing in-depth mysteries which go way beyond the 6 o'clock news. She's an American investigative journalist and documentary producer, writer, director, and editor. She is best known as an ufologist and advocate for a variety of conspiracy theories. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula.
3: And I'm Taz. Linda has a monthly three-hour radio news report about science, the environment, and Earth mysteries on Premier Radio Network's Coast to Coast AM that broadcasts throughout North America. She also airs on Whitley Strieber's Dreamland online. She was also interviewed for all seasons 2009 to 2012 of the TV series Ancient Aliens broadcast on the History Channel. Paula, with Linda's track record, she must get up each morning knowing that everyone now expects her to keep switching on those lights to the unknown.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, Taz, you're probably right. Uh, we have to admit that our, our point of view, at least, Linda has a pretty exciting job. Disturbing people's natural psyche of hoping things remain the same, well, they're not. Welcome back, Linda. We've had you on our show before, and we are so thrilled to have you back again.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, A couple of updates. The Ancient Alien series for the History Channel is ongoing through this year and into next season. I have been in Los Angeles and done production with them for both the 2013 and 2014 seasons. Mm -hmm. So that has been one of the highlights i think in cable television of a program that has taken some of these earth mysteries subjects seriously and tried to at least flesh them out not to debunk and not to argue but to show what is there that is worth studying also i never have been a ufologist the word has no meaning to me personally I have always been a producer, writer, director, editor, and reporter for television and radio and books and writing, and it was in the process of 1979 as director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver that I was exposed for the first time to all of the unusual bloodless, trackless animal deaths in Colorado and soon learned that they were occurring around the world in both hemispheres. And that's when I produced uh, the TV special called A Strange Harvest. And that was the, you might say, the first step through the Alice in Wonderland mirror from the world that most people are in, in which UFOs, crop circles, animal mutilations, Sasquatch, and so forth, do not exist, and governments have been extremely effective with counterintelligence programs to turn the public and the media away from hard physical facts, that they all are real, they are all interacting on our planet, while 99.5% of the Earth population continues to live life basically manipulated by counterintelligence operations, that none of this is real. And from my point of view, my entire professional life has been focused on the pressure of fact. That is what I've always honored, not political uh, manipulation, not what is politically acceptable, but what is the truth, what is the physical evidence. And that is what I hope I brought to bear in my investigations of the animal mutilations. I know that for the very first time, I had a hematologist and pathologist in Denver, Colorado, Dr. John Outschuler, bringing his very sophisticated lab to look at the excisions, blood, tissue, uh, and all kinds of physical evidence that we have been able to document. And I have published and reported that the animal mutilations are being done by a technology which has not existed at least so far on this planet. And the second part of it was that I also work with biophysicists. We have done soil compression tests and been able uh, often to document that these animals that are found on isolated grounds where the dust can be as fine as, uh, let's say, face powder, so that any track of a rabbit, let alone cattle, would immediately show up that these animals are often found on that kind of dust with no track around them at all, but with the same excision of ear, eye, tongue, jaw, flesh, genitals, and rectum cord out without blood. And it was the uh, absence of those tracks that made law enforcement first look up to the sky, and it was the absence of that uh, of the physical tracks that when I went up in one of my first meetings to talk with the just retired Sheriff Tex Graves up in Logan County, Colorado, and after spending an entire day looking at Sheriff's Office's Polaroids of 266 of these animals that his office alone had investigated, and in the state of Colorado there had been probably a 1,000 or more by then, he looked at me at one point and he said, Linda, I just want to save you some time the perpetrators of these animal mutilations are creatures from outer space, close quote. Well, for me, coming from a master's degree at Stanford University, where all of my work had been making documentaries with the Stanford Medical Center, working my master's degree film at Stanford was with the Stanford Linear Accelerator that at that time was just beginning, to get software engineers in to try to build programs in which they could do analysis of bombardments in the Stanford Linear Accelerator and have computers do the analysis instead of the hard labor by humans. That was what my master's degree film was about. So sitting and beginning to hear law enforcement tell me that the perpetrators of all of this physical evidence all over the planet, not confined just to Colorado, was creatures from outer space, which was the phrase that was being used and repeated to me over and over in 79 to 80, was the beginning of what I would say is a challenge to anybody's mind, body, and spirit living on this earth that when you realize that there is hard physical evidence but that there has been a political denial by your government – Uh, For me, as an investigative reporter and a TV producer, I have never, ever been able to walk away from that question. Why would the government of the United States, England, or any government on this planet, since at least World War II, have strict policies of denial about something that people underneath the radar know and will tell me and tell others straightforward from their own work, yes, yes? We are dealing with extraterrestrial biological entities that interact with this planet. And one man who had retired from the Defense Intelligence Agency in 1999, big long story, how he organized through somebody who worked for the World Bank to have a meeting with me because in my third book, Glimpses of Other Realities, Volume 2, High Strangeness, I have an entire chapter about half a dozen people in the abduction syndrome who have had exposures to all kinds of what what they call tube technologies in which there can be cloning, there can be the use of genetics in many, many ways, and that's what that man wanted to talk to me about. And he said something that startled me. He said that in the office in which he had worked, trying to monitor and analyze the territorial the political territorial conflicts of three competing extraterrestrial species on this planet, that it was his understanding from other work our government had done that there had been terraforming by these various nonhumans on this planet for more than 270 million years. And I remember being shocked by that statement and saying to this uh, retiring government agent, are you trying to tell me that you, you have some sort of evidence that competing non-human groups have been interacting with this planet since before the time of the dinosaurs. And he said, yes, that is true. Now, that sets the stage for what I'm going to be discussing in Los Angeles at the Consciousness uh, Life Conference in uh, Los Angeles, February 7th to 9th. Because the whole issue of what is the relationship between other life in this universe and this planet and any other planets where there is life, and how long back does the timeline go on planet Earth in which there have been at least one, two, three different types that don't get along that have been terraforming and using this planet. And when... You look at your own academic education, and you say that for how long, uh, for centuries, the academics and the uh, so-called government controllers of this planet have always drawn a sort of now artificial line in the sand saying 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, which is current Iran, Iraq, Syria area, that 5,000 years ago, this is the quote you can find in textbooks, even in college, that, that human civilization began and that writing began and numbers began. Well, now today in 2014, that old academic kind of written in stone, it seems almost quaint because what has been happening in the last few years is that archaeologically around the planet in both hemispheres more and more sites are being discovered in which it's pushing way far past 5,000 years for extraordinary structures that are found underground. And that comes to Gobekli Tepe. It was June 13, 2012, and I was standing on that hill in southern Turkey not far from the Syrian border, And with me was Robert Schock. He got his uh, Ph.D. in in, uh, geology from Yale University. It was Robert Schock who had the big breakthrough that even the New York Times reported in, I think it was approximately 1992, when he and John Anthony West had gone to Cairo because Dr. Schock was convinced upon studying uh, photographs of the Sphinx that he was looking at what could only have been carved by rain water coming vertically down onto the Sphinx and making rivulets that we see sometimes in plateaus and mountains and hills from heavy rain. And when they finally went there and shock was there and made measurements and analysis and they, made a, uh, they had a press conference, and this is what was carried in all of the major uh, news at the time, that, yes, the Sphinx from this PhD Yale geology student and professor that the Sphinx, the rivulets on the Sphinx could only have been made from vertically falling rain. So then they went into archaeoclimate and they looked back in history. When was the last time that there could have been enough atmospheric weather? that there could have been that much rain that could have fallen on the Sphinx and caused those rivulets. And the time that they came up with and reported back in 1992 was 14,000 years ago on the Nile. Well, that was a huge uh, sensation at the time, and it created, provoked all kinds of pushback from academics all over the place. And for a while, Dr. Schock and John Anthony West were sort of isolated Uh, from acceptance. Today, I think it is now a generally accepted idea. Maybe now it has gone almost to fact in Harvard, Oxford, Stanford, and the major universities of the world that the Sphinx has to be older than 5,000 years, which was the old line demarcating Mesopotamia as the beginning of civilization, which was not and is not. So now we have the Sphinx question hanging out there. Who built it? 14,000 years ago. Now, at, when you're at Göbekli Tepe, as I was with Dr. Shock, and we went there in or, in the dark in order to be there when the sun came up because we were all interested to see what would, the, where would the sunlight, what would it be hitting in this area that is down below. Uh, this sort of potbelly hill, which is what Göbekli Tepe means in the Turkish language, and that when the sun hit my face for the first time, I turned 180 degrees. So now I'm looking down into this remarkable site that was only first reported to the public world in 2010. Doesn't seem that's possible now that all of this could have been hidden for so long. But the a German archaeologist, uh, Klaus Schmidt, who began, uh, uh, he had heard a rumor about sheep herders finding something unusual on this hill uh, northeast of a place called Urfa, or today it's called San Lurfa. And Dr. Klaus from Germany went there and decided it was definitely worth investigating and he started his work completely off the radar completely silent he worked from 94 until 2010 meticulously digging into this hillside and the more he found the more he has dug and today in 2014 now about 5 acres of what is considered a 30 30- acre site, and this has been determined by deep ground penetrating radar, that where we see today these rings of 19-foot tall, exquisite, elegant pillars made of limestone in rings, that those rings of these 19-foot tall pillars extend over 30 acres. And if it has taken him from 94 to 2014 to excavate five acres, they're talking about decades into the future before they will even know all that is there. But I can tell you from having stood there in the sun coming up on my back on June 13, 2012, and having been an investigative reporter and TV producer my entire career and being used to going to all kinds of different sites and getting some kind of a sense, a sixth sense about what is there and why. As I went down onto the ramps that they have built so that you can get very close to these tall limestone pillars, the thing that struck me was I couldn't get any feeling except It was so strange that it made me nervous. And then I began to realize I was not comfortable in the presence of whatever this was. And Dr. Schock came down, and we were talking about it. He said he felt the same unease. And we were looking at these pillars, and he said, you know, there is something about what has been exposed so far that my mind keeps saying these look like tuning forks. And I wonder if this entire once-upon-a-time hill site was somehow interacting with frequencies that were being superimposed here for reasons unknown. That's the kind of discussion we were having that morning. And Now, go to Dr. Klaus Schmidt, and what did he find between 94 and 2014 now, and knew that when we were standing there a couple years ago, that in the carbon dating that they have been able to do on a few things where there was carbon, like it might have been some old cloth or leather, that they have now got firm carbon dating on sections of Gobekli Tepe at 12,000 years ago. That's 10,000 B.C. That's only 2,000 years now before the 14,000-year mark that – Dr. Schock originally proposed for the water rivulets on the Sphinx. That 12,000 years ago is more than twice the age of Mesopotamia. And perhaps the most remarkable of all, in, in doing this excavation, he began to realize that based on soil compression studies that they were dealing with soil that had been put back in. So that's where they began to unravel if Gobekli Tepe was originally constructed on that Turkish hillside or hilltop with 30 acres of these 19-foot tall, massive tons of limestone in these circles. And then... 1,000 years later, at approximately 11,000 years ago, the whole hilltop was covered back over, burying 30 acres of these tall rings and, and pillars. That is the biggest mystery about Gobekli Tepe. What could have occurred? How could this possibly have happened? And to me it's so interesting that Completely separate from going to Gobekli Tepe, before I went on that trip in 2012, I had done a pure science interview for my news website, earthfiles.com, for Coast to Coast AM, for uh, Unknown Countries, Dreamland, and several others, in which scientists at the University of Arizona have been uh, proposing and doing papers in the scientific community about the fact that they are convinced that eleven, about 10,500 to 11,500 years ago that there was some sort of an influx, and they think it's comets, not asteroids, and that our Earth was bombarded on the northern hemisphere side with comets, and that whatever was happening at the time that caused this huge influx It left a residue all over of certain sections of North America into Canada of what is known as a black mat, a black mat of carbon. That layer has been studied. There are photographs. You can see everything I'm talking about at earthfiles.com, and then... When they began getting a handle on the timeline that this black mat throughout North America, which what would have made all of this carbon, the conclusion usually when you find a carbon mat anywhere on the planet is there was a lot of fire. And it turns out that they now have a a hypothesis about what happened 10,500 to 11,500 years ago in which whatever the gases were in those primordial comets that impacted in north america it caused fires in the atmosphere in the ground suddenly for the first time there is now a combination a collision here of physics and what we have archaeologically on the ground in north america and, and anthropologically of all of the saber-toothed tiger skeletons that have been found with their spines twisted 180 degrees, all of those big woolly mammals with the huge tusks in which they have found buttercups so fresh that the yellow color was still there and they are described as being quick frozen. The scientists at the University of Arizona are taking their cometary physics And the zoologists and others who have been studying this huge decimation of 33 mammal species at exactly that same timeline, they're saying an event occurred from outer space that decimated 33 large animal species in North America and other places. And now, for those of us who have been to Gobekli Tepe and its high strangeness, built 12,000 years ago, and that Klaus Schmidt has hard physical evidence that it was completely buried 11,000 years ago. The question that hangs in the air unanswered is, if this was not built by humans, and almost everybody who's been there senses the alien-ness, there's just such an alien feeling about Gobekli Tepe, Is it possible that there were advanced intelligences, this is part of the terraforming, that this is where other intelligences have been using this planet in ways we don't comprehend or understand, and that Gobekli Tepe was one of their instruments, one of their technologies, and that they somehow knew something big was coming that would be a natural cosmic event that would end up obliterating some of their technology that they needed? and that they covered it all up now this is a discussion i've had with dr Schock over in gobekli tepe this is not something that is uh just coming from some wild website this is the discussion that is being had by many people who have been to gobekli tepe and in fact One of the first reporters there in 2010 was Andrew Curry from Smithsonian Magazine, one of the most respected uh, uh, magazines for the public in the world having to do with natural sciences. And as he was there at Gobekli Tepe, he ended up writing in Smithsonian, quote, what was so important to these early people that they gathered to build and then bury all of these stone rings? The gulf that separates us from Gobekli Tepe's builders is almost unimaginable. And then you get to what the Turkish archaeologists themselves have written about this remarkable place. And they use the word that the, the whole scene appears to have been built and related to supernatural beings. This is the Turkish archaeologist. And finally, we were taken to the museum in San Lurfa and that is where they have been transporting some of the most valuable pieces that they have discovered over the last decade and a half to this museum about six miles from the hill site. And the sad reason is they wanted to have everything preserved where they found it, and thieves started coming to the hill, and much has been stolen. So they had to start getting security and transporting the most valuable material that, was, that could be transported that wasn't too heavy to this museum. And when you go to the museum in San Lurfa and you look at what has been taken out over the last decade and a half from these acres that have been exposed, you're looking at creatures that have no definition. You're looking... At creatures that are standing on what appear to be two feet but you've never seen anything like them on this planet you come into one room where it looks like it's a it is a it's measured six foot four inch and it is a totem looks like a totem the kinds that might be carved out of wood in alaska but this is limestone and the way you come into the room is from the side and you're looking at a profile And at the top, I have these photographs just exactly as I took them as I entered the museum. And they are are at Earth Files showing it exactly as I experienced it. And from the left side of this uh, tall totem in limestone as I'm entering the room and taking the photos as I move, it looks like a very bizarre animal's head on top. You can see shoulders and what seems another set of arms that are clasping in the front, and then it looks like snakes, a snake that is uh, moving in an undulating pattern in what we would have considered to be the leg of whatever this thing is at the top of this totem. And then as I moved around in front, the face is completely obliterated by the top, strange, bizarre head. Down below, there is another obliterated face, but you can see arms and shoulders and fingers coming around in front of a second body. And then you realize that what look like the heads of snakes from the profile are in fact the knees of this middle character. And at the pubic area of that character in the middle is coming out in birth what looks like a human child. I was so stunned Standing there, because back on April 9th, 1983, I was at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico, beginning my work on a home box office special for which I had been contracted to produce an hour called UFOs, the ET Factor for HBO. And I was in a research phase. I was at Kirtland having to do with one particular story and in the presence of the uh, Air Force Office of Special uh, Investigations Agent that I was sitting in their office, I was handed what was introduced to me as an alleged briefing paper for a president of the United States. It didn't state which one. I learned later it was for Jimmy Carter. And in it, it described how our government had been Uh, retrieving from a variety of sites extraterrestrial biological entities, alive and dead, extraterrestrial biological entity technologies that we were trying to back-engineer. It was at various sites. And as I, in a state of shock, began reading all of this history, that now I'm supposed to be reading words that were given to a president of the United States I come to a paragraph that says this because I've never forgotten it, it is burned in my mind. These extraterrestrial biological entities manipulated DNA in already evolving primates to create Homo sapien. And in a page two or three later, it said, "All questions and mysteries about the evolution of Homo sapien on this planet have been answered, and this project is closed." And the bottom line was that I was reading an alleged presidential briefing paper that was saying all of humanity was the product of genetic manipulation by extraterrestrials on this planet, which fits into this bigger question of how long has this planet been terraformed by other intelligences that have created all kinds of Earth life and mixed and matched genes, and what today, in January of 2014, is our government sitting on in a policy of denial in what was supposed to be a democracy in which every single one of us deserves to know what our government knows about other life in the universe. And this is essentially what I've just described to you is at the heart of what I'm going to present in Los Angeles at the uh, LAX Hilton uh, February 7th
2: to ninth. Now, do other governments know the same thing as our government?
0: I know that the U.K. government and the United States government have been joined at the hip since World War Two, and they have always shared information. They always uh, usually back each other up on the policies of denial, which they have uh, done repeatedly with hard evidence to that fact. And it leaves this question, during World War Two. There may have been a a firm reason in that difficult war to have encountered hard facts. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, FDR, Churchill, that whole group, they would have been dealing with the uh, craft and the lights that they knew were uh, outstripping every airplane that anybody had in the air. There's all kinds of documentation to that from World War II now. And that they said... Essentially, we're going to slam this shut. Public and media are never to know until we understand what this is, what it wants. Is there a threat to the earth? Well, in January 2014, that policy of denial is still in effect 60 some years later. And that is the question we all should be asking. If the United States and England, World War II partners, which would also include Australia and Canada for sure, and that they've all stuck together, and we are now seeing that in the Snowden revelations. None of us knew that the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency, in particular the NSA, was using Canada to hide and camouflage Our intelligence work around the world, because Canada was considered an innocent, uh, uh, sort of a a non-aggressive political player in the current world scene, and now it's all been exposed. The NSA has been using Canada, which means Canada has been cooperating so closely with the United States since World War II that it would allow its embassies and its offices to be used by U.S. intelligence in something as big and penetrating as the National Security Agency's surveillance of this planet. So those, at least those four, U.S., U.K., Canada, and Australia, they have been bound into this policy of denial since World War II, and I and a lot of others who have tried to just investigate the facts, report the facts, We are now sitting on the question, is there something now that is going on uh, that our government and the U.K. uh, are aware of that might be related to cycles concerning these uh, other intelligences that come and go on this planet, and what happens when they come back?
2: Do you think there's any communication? Between
0: well, that's what Project Sigma has been defined as since the early 1980s. Project Sigma was one of the projects in the presidential briefing paper that I was shown at Kirtland Air Force Base in 1983. But Project Sigma has been described in other documents and by other whistleblowers since at least the early 1980s as being this government's effort to have a communication program with at least one of the extraterrestrial biological entities out there. I'm saying that with the firmness of having seen uh, documents and being exposed to people who have worked in those programs. The problem is none of this has been officially uh, communicated to the American public outside of the work of people like myself and Jim Mars and Richard Dolan and others who are – we are reporting things we are exposed to, and unfortunately, the vast majority of the people who have had first-hand knowledge, they refuse to go on the record as themselves or with their names. And so we are in that difficult transition period. I don't think there is a question in anybody's mind uh, about that old rubric that we're alone in the universe. Good heavens. Uh, and it may be that what's going to happen uh, that would take the pressure off the governments is that they are trying to get the stage set so that the first announcement of we have finally discovered other life in the universe, it may be microbes on Mars, it might be some strange life form on Enceladus or Europa or Titan in the solar system and or one of the many Earth-like planets uh, that we now are convinced Uh, are within uh, 11 light years of our own planet. So if we are in a universe in which, in this galaxy alone, and there are billions of galaxies, so we're in the Milky Way galaxy, and that the Milky Way galaxy already, I think that they have said that there must be a half billion planets in this galaxy alone with some form of life. That's the estimate.
2: Now, if they unearthed the uh, tuning forks in Turkey... Um, well, I'm
0: saying that was Dr. Shocks just wondering about the shape and the size and that it just hit him as he was talking to me. Not that we know this. He just said they, he reminded him of tuning forks, and he couldn't help but wonder was the whole place used to vibrate with some sort of a frequency that would have been applied to that hill. We don't know, but it's just that shows you how far minds reach when you are at Gobekli Tepe and you are surrounded by that environment, which makes no sense.
2: Well, we interviewed recently uh, Michael Tellinger. Yes, I know Michael. And you probably know the the, uh, circles that he's found in Africa, and it seems to be something similar. I mean, it's a way of like tuning forks or uh, he said he thought it was for mining for gold, but um, it seems very similar to in some forms that what's been being found in Turkey.
0: In fact, when I'm speaking in Los Angeles, I'm going to try to weave uh, from everything I've been exposed to the concept of self-activating software. I have been introduced that as being a fact of extraterrestrial biological entity technology. And self-activating software, as it's been described to me, will include almost all of the ancient circular configurations on this planet as well as pyramid structures. And the suggestion is that all of the ancient stone circles and pyramids are related to a technology and that the technology needs a field. It can't activate without this superimposed uh, field. A field would, ha- would have some kind of a frequency in it and if you, can then, uh, if you can then project a frequency on these stone structures that is the correct one, then they will there's two uh, two categories of function, one is to provide energy and the second is to provide global instant communication
2: so right under our finger fingertips, we have probably available free energy
0: if we had the fields the fields I've, I've talked with physicists about this a field it is a uh, it is a very frail English word to try to describe something that is fundamental to the whole universe, the fabric of the universe, uh, may, I'll try it this way. If you go to uh, biblical literature, if you, if you go to the Bible, the King James Bible, what is the very first sentence of Genesis?
2: What is it?
0: In the beginning was the Word, capital W-O-R-D. That's the way all of the different Bible translations begin. In the beginning was the Word. And uh, theologians and all sorts of people have uh, written whole treatises about what does that one sentence mean. Today, in the 2014 world, where you have quantum physicists who are going very deeply into the fact that is, the deeper you go into an atom, the more you are in space. But the space is not empty. The space is filled with energy. That's what the zero-point energy is about. It may relate to what the mysteries of dark energy and dark matter, but at the heart, then, of what we from the outside, say, would be nothingness between electrons, protons, and neutrons is, in fact, the heart of the energy of the universe. And that when you get down to fundamentally
1: what is matter,
0: and you have a physicist, David Bohm, so famously said before his death, all matter is frozen light then you come to what separates then? What's the differentiation between you're sitting in a chair on a floor in a building with hard structures? That's matter that has mass. But if all of that matter and that mass is essentially frozen light, what does that mean? It means that everything is vibrating at certain frequencies, Light, we know has a huge frequency and travels at one hundred and eighty six thousand miles a second. Matter, as we know matter, has atoms, electrons, and neutrons, and they are operating at certain laws at the atomic level in which all frequent all positions of a frequency are Always happening at the same time. This is the difficulty that Einstein had when he said that he didn't think that God played dice with the universe because he kept coming up against this, uh, incredible and difficult to understand factor of, uh, quantum mechanics, uh, that all, at the atomic level, all electrons or all electron positions are always occurring At the same time, and only by consciously focusing on an atom will it ever have any electron in one position. And these are the kinds of difficult discussions uh, that people have a hard time with, but it all comes down to this issue of frequency and fields. If we're dealing with advanced civilizations, as Michio Kaku from NYU in New York would say, there are civilizations that he puts in the categories of one, two, three, and 4, and he puts Earth in zero. And that the civilizations three, let's say, there's enough time in the age of the universe for all four to exist. And the three and the four would be the most advanced because they were the oldest, and they had survived. And that the civilization three would use actual suns for infinite energy impossible for us to even comprehend but this is a quantum physicist today uh, giving some options about what might be going on in this universe that we're not aware of and if you have advanced uh, let's say a civilization three that finally or somehow is looking for maybe watery planets maybe that's all they were uh, looking for out of uh, the cosmos, and maybe they came up with a billion or six billion or ten billion that had enough water, and that's where they went. They would become, then, the terraformers of so many different solar systems for a variety of reasons that only they would know, and we are only waking up for the very first time on this planet, for the first time, that humanity genetically has a very bizarre history. These new papers are coming out all the time that seem to support what I was shown back in 1983. There is an unknown quantity in human history that today is uh, at the forefront of a lot of genetic research. Where and how did we come into existence? And if the non-humans that made us, for whatever reason, Zechariah Sitchin would say originally it's whoever the non-humans are that made Mesopotamia that they wanted to have a, a physical labor force on the planet. Maybe it's that simple, maybe not. But if you just go to the, we'll, we'll say square one, we're not alone in the universe. And then you go to square two. And what else is in the universe? Some of it is really advanced and old, and it can go to places like Earth. Square three, if you have advanced civilizations that can neutralize gravity, that can beam point to point, they don't use Euclidean, uh, any kind of Euclidean walking on a sidewalk. Uh, they have the ability to move point to point because they've learned how to bend space and time. None of that is outside the accepted laws in quantum physics discussed today. It's that we can't do it. Humans can't do it. So by square four, you are, okay, it makes sense. It's logical that there's other life. It's been coming here. It's terraformed this planet. But why, who, when, where, and what are the various phenomena on Earth in January 2014, are most of the lights, most of the beams, are they androids? Have there been any of the advanced intelligences actually on this planet in the last 12,000 years? Whoever built Gobekli Tepe and then covered it up in the cataclysm that hit the North American side of the planet, where did it go?
2: So, this is kind of far out, but the crop circles, and we see little beams of light when the crop circles are being formed. Could that be um, coming from an alien race, and they can just do it from wherever they're at and just beam light to us?
0: Well, I have been in England, what, 10 or 12 times, uh, starting in 92, just uh, to be in crop circles and study them. So I have seen, they aren't beams, they're uh, moving, they're small. We've been able to determine that through videotape and photographs. I've seen these with my own eyes, uh, the moving lights over crops. I have uh, seen... uh, ovals with seven other people in a field, an east field, looking through an infrared scope. And it was only in infrared that we saw astonishing movement. They looked brilliant, as bright as the sun in the infrared. Uh, Star scopes could pick it up, but not as well as the infrared. But when we used our eyes, we saw nothing, zero. So the idea, as one government guy said to me a long time ago, he said the major the major well a major concentration of research by the United States government is in infrared because that's where we're dealing with intelligences that stay in those kinds of frequencies so we can't see them. And that the idea that something can control what it reflects to the human retina is part of this huge story. And in England and other parts of the world, where so many people have seen the moving small, usually not, longer, not wider, not the diameter not more than six inches, moving over fields as I have, and sometimes they look like glittering mirrors, have been people who have videotaped these moving lights and crops where patterns have either been made or they were made. Uh, when you look at the videotape, it looks exactly like a fluttering mirror in the noon. It's that bright and fluttery. Well, I went to Hesdalen, Norway, about 10 years ago now, I think. I was invited to join some engineers and astronomers from Oslo and uh... from uh... italy and they were studying the what are called the hestalon lights up in the mountains there's we're we were way above tree line and every single night that i was there for a week we were seeing these bright mirror-like lights that would pop up in various places there was no rhyme or reason to wear or a time cycle that would just occur. And the challenge was to get any of it on videotape or in spectroscopy, which is what astronomers will uh, study, starlight and so forth. They, they were bringing to bear the technologies that they had. But uh, when you uh, are in a place like that and these lights come and go, uh, catching them was a real challenge, but we all saw them. And when you uh, say, well, there's nothing here but the the granite and the molybdenum and the copper and the, the, those mountain, the mountaintops above Hestalen, which is a, a valley village, it's uh, just crammed full of metals. Is that what is of interest? Well, after being there for two or three nights, one of the astronomers, we would go back to where we were all staying, and it would be just like sort of like uh, the sky had just barely gone down because we were there in the summer and there was no night, really. And the only way people made night is you had to have thick screens on windows. So we would go back and, and uh, sit around and talk about what we'd been doing in this strange, dim, dim kind of artificial light that we were trying to manufacture to have night. And uh, on one of those nights... Uh, this one particular uh, Italian astronomer, he said, you know, I really am beginning to think that we are dealing with advanced programmed plasmas. And I asked him, what do you mean? He said, well, we make computers with we chips. We're always looking for ways that we can uh, put zeros and ones in various kinds of uh, whether it's going to be crystal or has been metal or whatever it is. He said, I think that we are dealing with intelligent plasmas that have been programmed with zeros and ones to monitor something on this planet, and they are always uploading and downloading information.
2: That makes complete sense to me, anyway.
0: (laughs) And then... Why would that intelligence, let's say, that is responsible for the, we'll call it the photon, plasma, I guess I want to say ion, plasma android monitors on Earth, who would be putting geometries in the cereal crops of the world, which is sort of like a skin of the Earth, and doing it repeatedly since at least the 1980s on a regular basis, largely in circles, but not always. And uh, one person that I met in the field once that I later learned worked for the CIA and was over there pretending to be something else, uh, he told me that uh, our government was pretty much convinced that these were markers in time, by some advanced intelligence that was time traveling, and they were using the markers in the Earth serial fields to determine how accurate they were moving in time.
3: Wow! You know, it's interesting that you're you're also saying that um, the uh, the your monitoring. The planet. I, I think there are some UFOs that do monitor, and they're monitoring the 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 Earth itself and how things are working. And so, from what you're saying, I, I think that that's that's definitely a possibility. And um, and then you know you're talking about the crop circles um, programming. I, Programming people maybe to look at life differently, or or what do you think about that? I mean, you you know you're around so many people, and um, what are their opinions on this as well?
0: Well, I think what you're asking me is if we were set in motion by non humans why would they be monitoring us with androids and not be here front and center in front of us?
3: Well, I mean, maybe if we were to see them front and center, we wouldn't exactly like what we
0: saw. You know? Well, on the other side of that question, though, may be the answer, that if they were front and center, then they would be obvious, that there is something inherent to the whole phenomena that includes secrecy. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to want us to know exactly what they are doing, or they would be among us and uh, they would be helping us build with their neutralizing gravity machines. Um, There seems to be a hands-off or an observational uh, where everything is supposed to be at a distance uh, currently. And you add to that, that it is in the interests of our government and the U.K. government to not tell the truth because in all of the secrecy since World War II and these policies of denial, they have had the safety of not having to stand up in front of the press conference of the world of all time mm-hmm. and say, we're not alone We know that there are all kinds of extraterrestrial biological entities that come and go here. They built the pyramid. They built the stone circles. Uh, We just happen to be one of their latest uh, life forms that they have genetically manipulated. We're not exactly sure what they want to use us for. Uh, We're not exactly sure what they're going to do with us, but we are here to tell you we now know that we're not alone in extraterrestrials have been here past, present, and they will be here in the future. I mean, imagine a political personality being confronted with that as a script to deliver to the world. Uh, The political ego, by definition, doesn't ever want to have that kind of press conference. They want to have the press conference. Um, We know we're not alone in the universe, but ladies and gentlemen, there's no problem. You have nothing to worry about. We've got it all under control.
3: Well, the corporations yeah, want to... still have corporations still have the hand because of money aspects, but we also have war on this planet. Like you know, we still are not um, a kind race. You know, right. all over the planet. So, you know, I think they might be also. You know, waiting looking to at see that you up. grow up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah we're, I, mean, I think we're right. like an experiment or <laughs> yeah. an exper- yeah.
2: experimental yeah, experiment. Yeah, and
3: so, and obviously we've you know, um, I think over the last few years people have come a long ways, you know, like Snowden's released information and a lot of people like that to right. expose what's happening and make the people awake up at least
0: That's and, right. and
3: not, you know, well, because of everybody. Linda, hap- yeah, Linda happens to be
2: doing that on her own, you know, going on. <laughs> TV and making these documentaries. I mean, Linda, you are uh, contributing so much, and we thank you for that. Well,
0: it's very difficult. I mean, this has been like walking a razor blade now for 34 years since uh, taking on the subject of animal mutilations and who, what, and why we're killing all these animals in these bloodless, trackless ways. But, you know, if you had any idea at the beginning of such a difficult razor blade journey you would never start it and what I've learned about life it is only in innocence and curiosity that most of us do anything and that as each year has gone by and I've been exposed exponentially every year to more and more and today I uh, am astonished at what I have been exposed to and What a concocted planet we are living on, concocted socially, religiously, politically in every way, and that what would it be like to finally have whatever population continues to evolve on Earth, suddenly, overnight, deus ex machina, the finger of the divine, comes and says, here's the truth. Here are other life forms, and from here on out, you are all going to work together. What a, you know, I think that's the dream that everybody has.
3: Yeah. Well, let's first of all let people know also you're going to be in uh, Los Angeles at the Earth Files, um, excuse
0: me. It's at the, the Consciousness, consciousness life, life Expo. Expo. Yeah, and it is February 7th to 9th and they have me scheduled uh to do uh, a meet and greet with George Nori from Coast to Coast on Saturday uh and then uh I am I think I'm scheduled to do a panel also that day and then on Sunday I'm doing both a lecture and a uh I think it's a workshop and so I will be going into all of this, but with images and video and so forth uh, for my presentations. And I have found the Consciousness Life Expo to be a conference that is very fun for the speakers to attend, but also the audience. It is uh, packed with a variety of different subjects that roll on through the three-day conference, and I think it is definitely worth attending. So I hope people who are listening uh, to your program will uh, come, and if you do, please come and introduce yourself to me there in Los Angeles at the LAX Hilton, and um, I think that at, well, I know that at earthfiles.com, my own website, www.earthfiles.com, right at the top of my headlines page, there is a link uh, to information about the conference and how to register and all of that. And that mm-hmm. will give you whatever the current schedules are for those of us that are presenters uh, this year in Los Angeles.
3: Yes, perfect. And, well, um, thank you,
2: Linda, for being with us today. And
3: um, Thanks I for mean, keeping. We've covered a, <laughs> we've covered a lot. <laughs> please, so.
0: Well, thank, so, thank you for yeah. rocking the boat. Yeah,
3: <laughs> we
0: love you. Well, thank you very, very much. Uh, I appreciate the work of anybody who is trying to reach audiences with facts that are different from that which governments try to control.
2: Well, it's coming out gradually. Yeah. So thank you for your time. Thank
0: thank you, and Happy New Year to you and your audience in spite of it all.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You too. And
2: happy New in Los
0: Angeles. Thank you. (laughs) Uh-huh. Bye bye-bye. bye. We'll we'll bye-bye. bye bye. Bye.